Psalm 38. When you and I find ourselves in the dark depths of sin, what are we supposed to do? Where does our help come from? What is our true salvation? One hymn says it this way, out of the depths I cry to you, in darkest places I will call. Incline your ear to me anew and hear my cry for mercy, Lord. Were you to count my sinful ways, how could I come before your throne? Yet full forgiveness meets my gaze. I stand redeemed by grace alone. I will wait for you. On your word, I will rely. I will wait for you till my soul is satisfied. The heart of the hymn is this. I will wait for you where forgiveness and redemption are wrapped up in the free gift of grace. I will wait for you because you are my salvation. In order to properly see our salvation, we must remember our sin. In order to see our salvation, the title of Psalm 38 is this, is this a psalm of David for the memorial offering, or a psalm of David to bring remembrance. So as they would sing this song, God's people would remember. They would remember their true salvation and they would learn to wait on God. So for us, as we read, let us remember our true salvation and learn to wait on him. Let's read Psalm 38. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O oh Lord, do I wait. It is you, O oh Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity, I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. 
Oh my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O oh Lord, my salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And we pray now that you would do the surgery on our hearts. Without you unto ourselves, we are utterly sinful. And we are going to choose nothing but sin and rebellion against you. That is the nature of our hearts. But would you, by your word, take away that part of our hearts, the hardness of our flesh, and give us a new heart, one that delights in your word. And God, if there is anything that I say or if there is anything that we think that is not of you, I pray that you would remove it from us. Whatever it is that you have for us this morning in your word, clear our minds, clear, our, clear every distraction from us that we may see you in your word. God, would you show us our salvation in the deep depths of, the, of darkness of our sin that we live in? Would you show us light by your son? In this, God, we thank you because we know you can and we know that you will. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In verses 3 through 14, David focuses on the heavy weight of sin and exactly what it does to him. And he acknowledges that this is simply by design from God. It is his discipline against his sin. All because, it's all because of David's sin. For those hearing this psalm, they're, they're to relate to the psalmist in this way in what he describes in verse three. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. From the beginning, the consequences of sin have been devastating. God warned Adam and Eve the day that they ate of it, they would surely die. Sin brings death. It would make John Owen say, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's what sin does. But David acknowledges here that there are, are in fact two waves of affliction coming at him. God's indignation at his sin, which is a natural consequence, but also just the practical effects of sin. One is merciful, but both are still painful. Verse four. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. Do you see it? David's sin is killing him. We don't know if he means all of these things physically, but we know for a fact that they are happening to him spiritually. That's what sin does. Sin is a cancerous poison that eats away at our souls. It kills us. Why? Why is it this way? 
God has designed it this way to keep sin bitter. Sin will always waste our bones away. That's what it's designed to do. Sin will kill us. It will take away our purpose in life to glorify God and enjoy him. It will give us guilt and shame. It will lead us to doubt God's love for us. And sin is just at its most basic level, a horrible atrocity against God himself because it is absolute and utter foolishness to see God for who he is and yet rebel against him. Sin is this. God has given me everything I could ever want or need within the bounds of his commands. And in those bounds, I have complete joy and happiness. Think walking in the Garden of Eden. I walk around with a smile because of the way the Lord has loved me and the way I love the Lord, and everything is joyful beyond comparison. But over there lies another God that offers another salvation. It's small. It's meaningless. It's infectiously dangerous. It's a disease that kills our hearts. It builds upon itself. The more we get it, the more we want. But the more we get, the less it seems to satisfy. The reason, there's a reason why the meal is never enough. There's a reason why the images or videos aren't enough and we must keep scrolling. There's a reason why we want just a little more in our paycheck. There is a reason why we go deeper and deeper into sin. It is a bottomless pit of nothing. And we think that if we just go deeper, if we just had that thing, if we just had that girl, that guy, that marriage, that body, that paycheck, that whatever, then we would have our salvation, the salvation that it offers, but it's never there. It is a bottomless pit to nowhere, and in the pit, it is dark. There is no light, there is no sustenance for our souls, there is no water for our thirst. It leaves us with no soundness in our flesh, no health in our bones, with a heavy burden, with wounds that fester and stink. It leaves us with a burning in our sides that leaves us on the floor. It leaves us feeble and crushed. Sin offers a salvation, but it delivers death. And we choose it. We have the opportunity to choose not to sin. We have every opportunity to choose not to jump into the pit. But we love the pit. This is the human conundrum. We do what we do not want to do, and that which we want to do, we don't do. Why? If sin feels this way, and we know cognitively that sin is an offense against God, against the divine God, and that it's simply foolishness, Why do we still love it? Because the power of all temptation to sin is the hope that it will give us life. And the hard part about it is that it does give a little bit. There is some joy to sin. Hebrews 11.25 says this, By faith, Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy, enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. There are some pleasures of sin to enjoy. The issue is that they're fleeting. They never last. 
The joy and pleasure that sin promises is simply a mirage in the desert. Promising life and safety, but it is a lie. There is some joy to sin. There is some satisfaction, but it is shallow and empty. The gratification that does come from images or food or a perfect body, maybe it lasts for a few seconds. Maybe it lasts for a few days. Maybe even a few weeks. But that's only on the surface. Underneath, it has waged a silent warfare against our souls. Mortifying us. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now those of us who sin, we should feel oddly at home when reading this. It should feel very familiar to us. Because we should feel some semblance of this wasting away when we sin. Sin is trying to kill us, so we should feel some of the effects mentioned here. Everyone who heard this psalm, when David would be singing this, and they were singing along, they just traveled themselves down to the pit in their minds to be reminded of just how deep their sin can go. Maybe some of them were sitting there just like us, and as they're singing, they're in that pit. But it's to be reminded that salvation cannot be found there cannot be found in the sin because it promises it, but it doesn't fulfill it. In the pit, we need help. So the question then for those listening, for those um, who are to remember when they're listening to this psalm, who is there to help me? The psalm is to remember where our help comes from. Since my sin is plaguing me and I'm lying on the floor lifeless, the life has left my eyes. I cannot help myself. No matter how much I want to help myself, more of the problem won't fix the problem. So what about my friends or family? Can they help me? Verse 11. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest kin... Stand far off. Nope. They can't help my situation. There is no salvation in my friends or family. They're in their own pit. Friends and family can be amazing tools in the hand of God, in the hands of God to encourage and rebuke and build up in love, but they cannot save us from our sins. And if that wasn't enough, if the fact that we are in a pit crying out for help with no one there to save us, if that's not enough, verse 12, those who seek my life clay their snares. They set their traps. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. Just because sin is killing us doesn't mean the enemy has suddenly let up. They're down there in the pit with us. The pit was their device. In fact, they are close enough that David can hear them speak. At this point, David was so powerless that he couldn't even bring himself to respond. That's why we have verse 13. But I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. My sin has brought me so low that I cannot even utter a word against my enemy. Because of my sin, I'm lying lifeless in the pit of affliction while still being hunted by my enemy, and I'm utterly without hope. 
The psalm is doing something here. It's leading us on this journey to come to this conclusion, to ask this question. What in the world am I supposed to do? Where does my help come from? If all of these things are little salvations, my sin, if they're offering little salvations, but they aren't actually salvations at all, where's my true salvation? I want that. We are to remember that this is what sin does to us. But remembering in this sense is not fully remembering. It's not what the title is all about until we remember our salvation. So in order to see it, look back to verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. There's a difference there between wrath and discipline, and the difference is eternity. God disciplines his children, the believing, to take away their sins. But for the unbelieving, there is only wrath that will punish their sins forever in hell. But we're starting to see the important distinction of Psalm 38. David asks for death that brings about life. David asks for death that brings about life. Discipline me, just not in your wrath. Rebuke me, kill me, just don't kill me, is what he's saying. Kill the sin in me that I may live. Just, just do it without wrath or I can't handle it. It will kill me. So how is this possible? It's a really odd request that he would ask, but how is it possible that we can be disciplined, but not in wrath, but there's also discipline that has wrath? The only way it's possible for us to go through this at all is if we have no wrath built up against us. The issue is we have a whole lot of wrath built up against us. The only way this happens is if the wrath that is meant for our heads is placed on another. And this is what happened at the cross of Christ. By faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we take on his perfection and he takes on our sin. And at the cross, he took the wrath that was meant for us. He took the wrath that we fully deserved so that we might be disciplined only as a child from a father. He takes away that which kills us and leads us into life. A son might find a whole lot of joy in playing in the street. But dad knows that's not where his joy truly is. So he's going to yank that kid from the street. What are you doing, crazy? He's going to take away his joy to give him an even, an even greater joy. However, this does not mean that discipline is easy. It actually feels like getting shot with arrows, according to verse 2. For your arrows have sunk into me. He's speaking to God. Your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. This is God's way of taking away our sin. This is God's way of sanctifying us, cutting away all of the sinfulness of our hearts. It is, in fact, heart surgery. God's word takes a scalpel to our chest. It is not a teddy bear kind of dealing with sin. But again, it is only possible by faith in Jesus, who at the time of his passion, 
received these arrows and sustained the weight of the hand of the Father for our sins. The Father will not discipline us in his wrath or anger because his wrathful hand was pressed and his angry arrows were sunken into Jesus. And so now, if we are in Jesus, if we believe that Jesus' perfection was substituted for our sinfulness, that we could have eternal life, then there are no arrows of wrath left for us. The only arrows that remain, the only pressing down that remains, is that of a loving discipline from a father. Verses 3 through 14 show that sin, all it does is offer false salvations. Ones that never come. But beginning in verse one, we start to see just a glimpse of our true salvation. We still don't know how we get it. We have to see uh, the great contrast in the whole psalm with the conjunction in verse 15. But all of these salvations were offered to me and I took them to my detriment. They were quick to meet me with destruction. But I am turning away from those sins to turn to you. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. The issue with the little salvations that are offered in sin is that they are immediate. It is now I can be gratified now, I can have it now. But the salvation we seek in Christ is the one that we wait for. Psalm 62 Five through seven says this. For God alone, O my soul, he's talking to his own soul. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. And then Isaiah 40, verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We all understand the truths here. Salvation is offered in sin and it never fulfills its promise. Because it cannot. So instead of jumping to every little salvation quickly for salvation and help, for joy and life, we will wait upon the Lord for our salvation. Why? Verse 17. For I'm ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. So, verse 18. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. The proper response to verses 3 through 14 and then the proper response to verse 17 that we are in the pit by our own choosing because we love the pit is to confess that yes, we love sin but we are sorry for the fact that we love it. We repent. When those singing this psalm would hear this, they would remember their true salvation. They would remember, oh yeah, 
It's not found in any of these little salvations. It's found in in God alone. They would remember their true salvation and repent of all other efforts to try to find it on their own. They would forsake themselves and cast their whole lives on their coming Savior. If you ever find yourself in the pit, maybe it's later today. Maybe it's tonight. Maybe it's tomorrow, the next day. Remember here your response. I confess and I am sorry. And they all lived happily ever after. Except on earth that will never be true. Um, Even though the psalmist repents, the affliction of it all, it's still there. Look at verse 19. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. He has repented. He confessed of his sin. He told God, I am sorry, and yet all of these things are still there in his face. Verse 20, those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. I'm in the pit of sin, but I will wait for you. I repent and confess of my sin, and I am sorry, but my affliction remains. And we know this is true. The consequences of our sin remain. So what is our call now? If this is a psalm to remember, what are we to remember? Since all of these verses are true, we must remember verse 21. Do not forsake me. Do not abandon me. Do not leave me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Let this be our battle cry from the depths of sin. God, you are my salvation. I trust in and have faith in you alone. Impatience with salvation from God leads to frantically searching for it in sin. But David knows that if he simply waits for his salvation, then he will not sin. It will come because of what God has promised him already. If you notice, he's he's making a request while also stating truth. He's saying, don't leave me. Help me. You are my salvation. There's a request, but also this is true. How does he know? This is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 17. This is uh, a prophecy from uh, the prophet Samuel to David, and it's um, the Davidic covenant. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. The whole reason that David writes this psalm at all, to remember anything at all, or to wait on anything at all, is that he knows his eternal salvation is secured by faith in the promised Messiah. In ways he didn't fully know, David wrote about Jesus. 
He writes for God not to rebuke him in anger. He knows that it's possible. He doesn't know that Jesus is, is that person. He just didn't know it would be Jesus who would take on the wrath. When he calls God his salvation, he knew that salvation was there and that it was waiting for him and he could wait for it. He just didn't know that it would be Jesus. But we know. The only salvation from life in the pit of hell is found in Jesus, in Jesus Christ. And the only way we remain fighting that sin to show our heart's allegiance, to glorify our great God and Father is by remembering this true salvation and by waiting on him. We remember this true salvation and we wait on him. In Matthew 11, uh, John the Baptist is in prison and uh, Jesus has begun his ministry. John's not really sure. He knows the Messiah is coming at some point. Um, but when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The light of my eyes has gone from me. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. I'm crumpled to the floor. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. He says, I'm plagued with this sin and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Our salvation, our Messiah, our help, our God has come to us. And for us, we remember nothing more than that which has already happened. We remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. That one day, because of Jesus, you and I will be in eternity where all things will be made new. All because of the Savior who took our place on the cross to give us life forevermore. Real quickly, turn to Psalm 40. And starting in verse 6. Nope, sorry. Verse, chapter 39, verse 7. 39, 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. Do, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I may sojourn with you a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. The only way that that is possible, the only way that that happens is because the son gave up his life so that we could be sons and daughters. In the meantime, until that day, we remember God's discipline of us, not wrath. 
We remember our sin and the utter death that it brings. We remember our helplessness at the bottom of the pit. And we wait. We confess and repent of our sins and we simply remember that our true and only salvation is not coming, but has already come. In order to properly remember, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And we remember that it is by his body and his blood that took on God's wrath. By that we have eternal life. And so if you're a believer, you're welcome to the table to partake as part of the family of God. However, I ask that you remain in your seat if you are in unrepentant sin or if you are not yet a believer. For 1 Corinthians says you would be eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. Essentially, God takes the death of Jesus very seriously. And so, reflect on your life to see if you should refrain. If this is you, though, you are not without hope. If you're in unrepentant sin, I know for a fact that you feel the weight and the death of it. You feel verses 3 through 14. But hear the good news of the gospel again. That Jesus is your true salvation. The very thing that you are searching for in your sin is not there. And he is readily available to you. Not because you are worthy, but because he is gracious. Take hold of this grace again by believing in the gospel again. Repent of your sins this morning. If you are not a believer, I want to stress to you that you are currently in verses 3 through 14 with no way out on your own. You have no discipline from God, but eternal wrath waiting for you at your death. You do not have to spend eternity under the wrath of God. If you will believe in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, on your behalf, for your sins. God so loved the world that he sent his own infinitely valuable son to absorb the infinite wrath of God against all who take refuge in him. Listen, with trembling wonder, listen with faith to Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ bore the curse of God's wrath for all who would come to him and believe in him and glory in the shelter of his blood and his body. Believe in Jesus this morning for your true salvation. It is for you. For all of us, let us examine our lives with this prayer. Father, we confess our iniquities, that we are quick to find salvation in, in any other place but you. And we admit that this is only that it is only by this body and this blood that we have salvation. Would you, by your grace, allow us to wait on you, that we may best glorify you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So when you're ready, take your time to pray through what God has given you in his word. And when you're ready, <clears throat> the elements are at the back of the room. Grab those and bring them back to your seats, and we'll take them together here in a minute.
The rest of the hymn from the very beginning goes like this. So put your hope in God alone. Take courage in his power to save. Completely and forever one by Christ emerging from the grave. So we wait. We wait for the salvation that has already been secured for us. And how do we know? How do we know? Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after, after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, all of us are so quick to find salvation in so many things. Our flesh, <clears throat> we cannot control it. We cannot control our flesh at times. It seems as though it has a mind of its own. But God, would you help us to wait on you? We know, we know and we remember that sin is nothing for us but a decaying, cancerous poison inside of us. We know that, God. And we know that in you we find everything we could ever want or need or fathom. Yet the flesh in us wants the pit and loves the pit. It is only going to be by your power to change our hearts to help us to wait for you. In this psalm of remembrance, would you let us remember that you are God are our salvation. You are everything we are searching for. Would you help us to believe that? Would you give us the gift of faith this morning so that we have no other desire but you, so that we have no other want but you? And the sins that we do have, God, we confess. And we are sorry for them. In the meantime, would you help us? Help us to glorify you. Help us to find our salvation in you alone. Let us remember. Let us see the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus Christ, our salvation. And let that give us hope. We ask all of these things in the only way we can, by the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God, would you help our souls to sing?
great you are. For redeeming our lives from the pit. And until the day that you return or you call us home, until the day when we sit in your presence in glory and it is perfect, would you help us to remember your son on the cross? And would you help us to wait with great anticipation and hope for the day that is to come? Give us strength for today that we may stand so that we may glorify you and worship you because you are utterly deserving of it and we cannot do it unless you uphold us so will you do it? And in all of this, Father, we have nothing but thanks to give. Would you fill our hearts with the joy of the gospel? That all of this is possible because of the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of your Son. Give us faith in him today. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. I love you guys. You're dismissed.